Welcome to the new Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. We stream live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays at DocWashburnShow.com. Minutes after each live stream is completed, the Doc Washburn Show podcast is available for download at all your favorite podcast platforms. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at DocWashburnShow.com. This is episode 67 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, and it is Friday, January 14th, 2022. Coming up, school choice activists say North Carolina. The state of North Carolina is using student surveys to improve the state's surveillance system. What about your state? Is your state snooping on your kids? Reporter Sloan Rockmuth will give us the lowdown a little bit later in the show today. All right, yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. All right, let's get this started here. Peggy Noonan, who is a speechwriter for President Reagan, is a moderate Republican. By, by that, I mean she doesn't like Joe Biden, but she thinks he won the election. Now, Peggy Noonan writes for the Wall Street Journal, and she has a remarkable op-ed out this morning entitled, Biden's Georgia Speech is a Breakpoint, and I feel the need to share it with you. Now, as I've said before, since, of course, Biden and his minions stole the election, I try to avoid using the word president with his name. I call him the usurper. But anyway, of course, Peggy as she's slamming what uh, Biden did in his speech the other day, is still trying to respect the office or something like that. Anyway, here's what she says. It is startling when two speeches within 24 hours, neither much heralded in advance, the second wouldn't even have been given without the first, leave you knowing you have witnessed a seminal moment in the history of an administration, but it happened this week. Biden's Tuesday speech in Atlanta on voting rights was a disaster for him. By the end of Senate Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's answering speech on Wednesday, you knew some new breakpoint had occurred that Biden might have thought he was just crooning crooning to part of his base, but the repercussions were greater than that. He was breaking in some new way with others and didn't know it. It is poor political practice when you fail to guess the effects of your actions. He meant to mollify an important constituency, but instead he filled his opponents with honest indignation and I suspect encouraged in that fractured group some new unity. The speech itself was aggressive, intemperate, Not only offensive, but meant to offend. It seemed prepared by people who think 
There is only the Democrat Party in America. That's it. Everyone else is an outsider who can be disparaged. It was a mistake on many levels. Presidents, more than others in politics, have to maintain an even strain, as astronauts used to say. If a president is rhetorically manipulative and divisive on a voting rights bill, it undercuts what he's trying to establish the next day on COVID and the economy. The -the over-the-top language of the speech made him seem more emotional, less competent. The portentousness, man, what a word, the portentousness. In our lives and the life of our nation, there are moments so stark that they divide all that came before them from everything that followed. They stop time. Portentous comments like that made Biden appear incapable of understanding how the majority of Americans understand our own nation's history and the vast array of its challenges. By the end, he looked like a man operating apart from the American conversation, not at its center. This can be fatal to a presidency. He was hardly done speaking when a new Quinnipiac poll showed the usual low Biden numbers, but most pertinently that 49% of respondents say he is doing more to divide the country and only 42% see him as unifying it. Yeah, there's no way in the world, I believe, 42% of Americans believe that Biden's unifying the country. But anyway, Peggy Noonan goes on in the Wall Street Journal. In the speech, Mr. Biden claimed he stands against the forces in America that value power over principle. Last year, Georgia elected two Democrat senators. But Biden says... And what's been the reaction of Republicans in Georgia? Choose the wrong way, the undemocratic way. To them, too many people voting in a democracy is a problem. They want to suppress the right to vote. They want to subvert the election. Biden calls this Jim Crow 2.0. Says it's insidious. Says it's the kind of power you see in totalitarian states, not in democracies. And Biden says the problem is greater than Georgia. He says the United States Senate has been rendered a shell of its former self, that its rules must be changed. Biden says the filibuster is not used by Republicans to bring the Senate together, but to pull it further apart. The filibuster has been weaponized and abused. Biden says senators will now declare where they stand, not just for the moment, but for the ages. Peggy Noonan says the most wince-inducing Part of Biden's speech is when he says, Will you stand against election subversion? Yes or no? Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Peggy Noonan says, If a speech can be full of itself, this speech was from the floor of the Senate. The next day came Mr. McConnell's rebuke. It was stinging, indignant to the point of seething. He didn't attempt to scale any rhetorical heights. The plainness of his language was ferocious. McConnell said Biden's speech was profoundly unpresidential, deliberately divisive, and designed to pull our country further apart. 
McConnell said, I have known, liked, and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. McConnell reminded one and all that Biden had entered office calling on Americans to stop the shouting and lower the temperature. But yesterday he called millions of Americans his domestic enemies. That a week after he gave a January 6th lecture about not stoking political violence. McConnell said 12 months ago, this president said that disagreement must not lead to disunion. But yesterday he invoked the bloody disunion of the Civil War to demonize Americans who disagree with him. He compared a bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. Twelve months ago, the president said that politics need not be a raging fire destroying everything in its path. Yesterday, he poured a giant can of gasoline on that fire. In less than a year, restoring the soul of America has become, agree with me or you're a bigot. This inflammatory rhetoric was not an attempt to persuade skeptical Democrat or Republican senators. In fact, you could not invent a better advertisement for the legislative filibuster than a president abandoning rational persuasion for pure demagoguery. But he wasn't through. McConnell said American voters did not give President Biden a mandate for very much. They didn't give him big majorities in Congress but they did arguably give him a mandate to bridge a divided country. He said it is the one job citizens actually hired him to do, and he has failed to do it. Well, here's the thing. Of course, of course we didn't hire him to do that because we didn't hire him. The election was stolen. McConnell won't admit it. But, you know, he's given the old college try of slamming for Biden for giving such a divisive speech. Peggy Noonan says, in the pages of the Wall Street Journal this morning, then Mr. McConnell looked at Mr. Biden's specific claims regarding state voting laws. Quote, The sitting president of the United States of America compared American states to totalitarian states. He said our country will be an autocracy if he does not get his way. The world has now seen an American president propagandize against his own country to a degree that would have made Pravda blush referring to the official state newspaper under the Soviet Union, Pravda. McConnell continues, He trampled through some of the most sensitive and sacred parts of our nation's past. He invoked times when activists bled and when soldiers died, all to demagogue voting laws that are more expansive than what Democrats have in his own home state of Delaware. A president shouting that 52 senators and millions of Americans are racist unless he gets whatever he wants is proving exactly why the framers built the Senate to check his power. McConnell says what Mr. Biden was really doing was attempting to delegitimize the next election in case they lose it. Now, he said, it is the Senate's responsibility to protect the country. Peggy Noonan says that sounded very much like a vow from McConnell. It won't be good for Joe Biden. When national Democrats talk to the country, they always seem to be talking to themselves. They are of the left, as is their constituency, which wins the popular vote in presidential elections. No, it does not. See, that's the problem here. Peggy Noonan, as much as she wants to slam Joe Biden 
wants you to believe that she believes that he didn't steal the election, and you know good and well that he did. But anyway, I digress. The mainstream media through which they send their messages is of the left. The academics, historians, and professionals they consult are of the left. They get in the habit of talking to themselves in their language in a single looped conversation. They have no idea how they sound to the non-left, so they have no idea when they are damaging themselves. But this week, in Georgia, Mr. Biden damaged himself and strengthened and may even have taken a step in unifying the non-Democrats who are among their countrymen and who are, in fact, the majority of them. Well, even for a moderate Republican, Peggy Noonan's new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Biden's Georgia speech is a breakpoint, was pretty good. You know, I had to correct her a couple of times there. But otherwise, it was pretty good. All right. That having been said, I got to update you on a couple of things. We got uh, breaking news here from NBC. Did you hear the story the other day of the uh, woman in Texas who allegedly put her COVID positive child in the trunk of her car? Did you hear that? Okay, breaking. Judge finds no probable cause. In case of Texas mother who allegedly put her COVID-positive child in trunk. What? This just dropped a few minutes ago. A judge ruled Thursday there was no probable cause in the case of a Texas mother accused of putting her COVID-positive 13-year-old son in the trunk of her car to avoid being exposed to the virus. Sarah Beam, a 41-year-old public school teacher... was arrested January 8th and charged with endangering a child. She was later released after posting $1,500 bond. In the January 3rd incident, she went to a drive through testing site at Pridgen Stadium in Houston, where she allegedly told the director of health services at the site that the child was in the trunk to avoid exposing her as she was driving, according to charging documents. Sarah Beam allegedly told the director her child was was positive for COVID-19 and she brought him to the site for additional testing. The the director said the child was seen lying down inside the trunk and called police. Security video from nearby middle school confirmed the official's account according to charging documents. Judge Chris Morton said at the Thursday hearing no probable cause was found and she was discharged, according to court records. Sarah Beam's attorney, Nathaniel Petoniak, in a phone call declined to comment Thursday evening. However, the Harris County District Attorney's Office could still pursue charges. Well, I think they should. Dane Schiller, spokesman for the Harris County, Texas District Attorney's Office, said to NBC News, we absolutely we absolutely respect the judge's ruling, and we will continue with our work. He said, we will review all the evidence gathered by police and make a determination on how to proceed, including the possibility of presenting the case to a grand jury so the representatives of the people of Harris County can decide whether a criminal charge is appropriate. 
Ms. Beam is a high school English teacher who has been with the Cypress Fairbanks Independent School District northwest of Houston since 2011. She was placed on administrative leave. The district said in a statement to NBC News last week, her home has been decorated with posters bearing messages of support following the controversy. One of her neighbors, Doug Becker, expressed criticism over the incident, however, telling the outlet, I think she needs to be held accountable if she put a kid in a trunk. I have a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, oddly enough, I do too. I think she needs to go to jail. Uh, Call me crazy. Call me crazy, but I... I have a little problem with that. You know? What is it uh, Dr. Malone called it when he was on with uh, Joe Rogan? Mass formation psychosis. Mass formation psychosis. And that's what it is. That's what it is. Something's really wrong here. Something's really wrong here. I mean, for instance, there's no evidence that cloth masks work on protecting you or others from the woo flu. Plenty of it's evidence they don't work. And yet you still, in some places, have people and institutions insisting you wear them. Huh. How about that? How about that? Masks don't work, and yet our betters insist that we wear them. You have churches even saying, well, it's time to wear masks again. Uh, Yeah. Despite all the evidence. Despite all the evidence. So you got that going on. Now, I think it's remarkable that the DOJ yesterday announced that they are uh, prosecuting some oath keepers for sedition on January 6th of last year. You know what I'm saying? I think that's Remarkable. Especially since they still leave out this uh, Ray Epps guy. But the timing of it. They've apparently had all this information for a year. Sat on it. But now that they're being shown up. For not prosecuting Ray Epps. They pro- prosecute the other guys. They prosecute the other guys. I'm sure there will be an article by Julie Kelly at American Greatness about this pretty soon. But let's take a look at what she has right now. And we'll see if perhaps she did a little bit better job on this than 
Peggy Noonan did in the Wall Street Journal. Breaking from Julie, from Julie Kelly over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Article entitled, We Are All Domestic Terrorists Now. Subtitle, whether it's Paul Hodgkins or Mitch McConnell, Democrats like Joe Biden consider all detractors an enemy of the country. Here goes. According to Joe Biden's Justice Department, Paul Hodgkins is a domestic terrorist. Hodgkins, a working-class man from Tampa, committed what Democrats and the media consider a murderous crime comparable to flying a packed jetliner into a skyscraper or detonating a truck filled with explosives under a crowded federal building. What did he do? Paul Hodgkins entered the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. What exactly did Hodgkins do on that day of infamy? He followed a group of like-minded Donald Trump supporters into the hallowed halls and chambers of the U.S. Senate. In that sacred space where people far more important and educated than poor Hodgkins, according to those very important and very educated senators, make speeches and whatnot. Hodgkins, a crane operator, traveled alone by bus from central Florida to Washington. He was not chauffeured into the nation's capital in a black SUV and detail team in the way that very important senators roll into town. When he entered the sacred Senate chambers, Hodgkins carried with him a weapon so offensive that the mere sight of the device prompted the judge in his case to question Hodgkins' loyalty to his own country. That weapon was the flag bearing the words Trump 2020. Although Hodgkins did not commit a single violent act on on January 6th, federal prosecutors nonetheless consider him a domestic terrorist and want him punished accordingly. A prosecutor wrote in a July sentencing motion, quote, the need to deter others is especially strong in cases involving domestic terrorism, which the breach of the Capitol certainly was, unquote. So the prosecutor asked the judge to send Hodgkins to prison for 18 months after he pleaded guilty to one count of obstruction, quote, Moreover, with respect to specific deterrence, courts have recognized that terrorists, even those with no prior criminal behavior, are unique among criminals in the likelihood of recidivism, the difficulty of rehabilitation, and the need for incapacitation, unquote. Judge Randolph Moss agreed with the Justice Department's assessment. The Obama appointee claimed the four-hour disturbance at the Capitol on January 6th caused political and personal damage that will persist in this country for decades. Judge Moss was outraged at the sight of Hodgkins hoisting a Trump flag. He said the symbolism of that act is unmistakable. He was taking a claim on the Senate floor, declaring his loyalty to a single individual over a nation, unquote. Judge Moss ranted before sentencing Hodgkins to serve 15 months in jail. Biden's Justice Department just announced a new effort to keep the country safe from Hodgkins-type copycat criminals. During a Senate hearing on Tuesday, Matthew Olson 
head of the Justice Department's National Security Division, confirmed the formation of a domestic terrorism unit within the very agency established in 2006 to coordinate government efforts to fight foreign threats during the first war on terror. Olson told the committee this group of dedicated attorneys will focus on the domestic terrorism threat, helping ensure these cases are handled properly and effectively coordinated across the Department of Justice and across the country. To justify his unauthorized decision, after all, the National Security Division itself was formed not by administrative decree, but by the U.S. Congress under the USA Patriot Act, Olson claimed the number of domestic terrorism cases under investigation by the FBI has more than doubled since March of 2020. Now, precisely what those cases involve is anyone's guess. Neither Olson nor Jill Sanborn, the FBI official who also testified Tuesday, would offer specific examples or data to support that claim. Olson also admitted that there is no domestic terror statute on the books. Well, why let a little technicality like the law get in the way of the regime's punitive prosecution of political wrong think? The truth, of course, is we are all domestic terrorists now. Whether one carries the wrong flag or posts the wrong meme on social media or supports the wrong approach to the pandemic, the Biden regime, a woefully unpopular yet increasingly zealous cabal, will use every tool of the state, lawful and unlawful, to retaliate. It is the proud legacy of Marxism, raging leader and all. And, and, and we'll have audio of him raging here in just a moment. Julie Kelly says, as I detail in my new book, January 6th, how Democrats used the Capitol protest to launch a war on terror against the political right. The Biden regime wasted no time exploiting the brief chaos that resulted in the deaths not of government officials, but of four Trump supporters to pursue the Democrats' long-sought political goal of silencing and criminalizing dissent. Everyone from Fox News hosts to parents protesting radical policies of tax-funded school districts meets the left's broad definition of domestic terrorist. Lawmakers opposed to nationalized election legislation intended to codify the illegitimate 2020 presidential election also fit the profile of domestic terrorists. This even includes Biden's political cronies in the Republican Party. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who insisted the 2020 election was on the square, called election skepticism the big lie and accused Capitol protesters of committing an act of terrorism on January 6th, is on the Biden regime's most wanted domestic terror list for thwarting the Democrat Party's unconstitutional power grab of state election authority. Anyway, on Wednesday, McConnell said of his longtime former Senate colleague, Joseph Robinette Biden, he compared a bipartisan, minor, a bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. McConnell expressed great offense at Biden's description of him as a domestic enemy, serving as an historical reminder that even the most obsequious and compliant toady, like McConnell, won't be spared the vengeful reach of the Biden regime's rule. There is no national security threat posed by voters and lawmakers on the right. To the contrary, 
Most Americans view leftist activists who attempted to burn down the country in 2020 at the behest and bank accounts of Democrat Party leaders as a far greater danger to the American way of life than a furry shaman in the Capitol on January 6th or even alleged unarmed militia members. Ditto for potential terrorists from special interest countries pouring into the country like uh, from pouring into this country from Mexico, a threat neither Olson nor Sanborn would address since neither recently has traveled to the border. But facts don't matter. Only the pursuit of power. Whether it's Paul Hodgkins or Mitch McConnell, this bloodthirsty regime out of favor with Americans and with time running out on its unilateral control of the federal government considers all detractors an enemy of the country. So that's Julie Kelly over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, article entitled, We Are All Domestic Terrorists Now. And yes, I think she, uh, I think she did a better job. Uh, don't get me wrong, uh, Peggy Noonan did a, a fine op-ed there in the Wall Street Journal, such, it, such as it was, but Julie Kelly did a better job, I believe, than, uh, than Peggy Noonan did. All right, um, Coming up, coming up in just a few minutes, we will be speaking to um, Sloan Rockmuth, reporter and pro-school choice activist, asking about, is the state snooping on your kids? Because North Carolina, state of North Carolina sure is, using student surveys to improve the state surveillance system. That's coming up in just a few. In the meantime, I guess it's no surprise if you tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. I know people who've actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are, anywhere in the continental United States. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental United States. RedRiverYourWay.com You'll be glad you did. All right, moving forward, let me um, let me tell you a little bit about this deal with um, 
this uh, domestic terrorism unit of the DOJ that was announced a couple of days ago. Um, J. Michael Waller did a thread on this. He's a senior analyst for strategy, Center for Security Policy, founding editorial board member and NATO Defense Strategic Communications Journal. So, so a pretty uh, good pedigree there. Early this week, here's what he said on his thread on Twitter. Building their narrative, Senate Judiciary Committee holds hearing today, that was Tuesday, on domestic terrorism threat one year after January 6th. Senator Dick Durbin kicked off the hearing by repeatedly calling January 6th an insurrection and cited the made-for-TV props of a Confederate battle flag and a noose. He criticized Republican lawmakers for viewing their opposites as hostile adversaries. But wait, that's what Biden did. By the way, Durbin later said that Biden's speech might have been a little over the top. Driving the narrative, Dick Durbin, Illinois, raised school board meetings as an example of terrorist violence against public officials. Oh, okay. So Mama shows up at the school board meeting. She's upset about something going on, and she's a terrorist. Oh, so Durbin is uh, actually reading from the uh, same uh, sheet music that, uh, that Biden is. Great. But then Durbin actually broke with his Democrat colleagues to call out left-wing extremism in places like Portland, Oregon. I'm shocked. Knock me over with a leaf. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican, called out nearly 600 riots that came before January 6th violence and showed video of 2020 so-called peaceful protests of arson, tearing down statues, attacking courthouses, attacking White House, where there are 14,000 arrests and 2,000 armed officers, 25 deaths. Grassley said 50 courthouses were attacked last year. There was a 100-night siege on the Portland courthouse. Some Democrats called police stormtroopers at the time. Grassley said that before January 6th, some were too concerned about optics or the image of the National Guard at the Capitol. Oh, yeah. Grassley also said, Washington, D.C. Mayor Bowser said Portland rioters would be welcome in the nation's capital. Smash-and-grab robberies have become a way of life in many American cities, Grassley says. Big rise in targeting of police, other homicides across the U.S. Grassley continued, The police aren't just heroes because of January 6th when they defended us in the Capitol. He said police across the country are heroes and Americans must defend them. I wonder if Grassley knows how many how many police on January 6th actually attacked Trump supporters. But anyway, Grassley said Biden's national terrorism strategy made no mention whatever of the 2020 riots despite huge number of cases. He said there was almost no mention of left-wing terrorism at all. Thanks, Durbin, for at least mentioning left-wing terrorism. Grassley says critical race theory contributes to the violence problem in our society. 
He says, we have to deal with the 2020 riots on January 6th when we look over FBI domestic terrorism projects. Grassley continues saying that FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke last year of weaknesses in the left-wing domestic terrorism program that prevented the FBI from getting the visibility they needed during the 2020 riots. He says the Senate has got next to no information from the FBI about combating left-wing terrorism. Assistant Attorney General for National Security Mark Olson testified, rattled off cases of domestic terrorism and violence, but said nothing of the deadly 2020 riots. Olson said, we will follow the facts wherever they lead. Elevation of domestic violent extremists motivated by mix of ideology and personal grievances describes the role of DOJ National Security Division, says he's starting a new domestic terrorism unit. Really? So, this Olson guy, head of the National Security Division of the Justice Department, says we prosecute people for violent behavior and not for their beliefs and personal associations. Now, why would an assistant attorney general ever have to assure Congress that they prosecute people for violent behavior, not for their beliefs and personal associations? Just a thought J. Michael Waller throws out there. Then FBI Executive Assistant Director for National Security Jill Sanborn says the greatest threat facing the U.S. today are small cells that radicalize online that include both homegrown violent extremists inspired by foreign terrorists and domestic terrorists. Really? I wonder what kind of uh, homegrown violent extremists are inspired by foreign terrorists. She'll certainly never tell you. FBI Sanborn says FBI cannot and will not open investigations on people solely due to their First Amendment activity. She says she will testify on racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists. Well, I certainly don't believe her that the FBI will not open investigations of people solely due to their First Amendment activity. Why should I believe her? I mean, we've seen evidence of that. And the FBI lies all the time. Anyway, Dick Durbin, the um, head of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrat Center from Illinois, says 89% of January 6th rioters had no previous records or connections. Well, that might point to the fact they didn't actually riot. He says 40% arrested are business owners and professionals. He said most of them did not come from deep red strongholds, but from Joe Biden areas. Durbin asked the FBI and DOJ about these conclusions. DOJ's Olson said we must condemn January 6th violence with one voice. He says nothing about condemning 2020 rioting. Dick Durbin appears to be building an argument for monitoring people who are not associated with terrorist groups and have no criminal records. Of course he is. 
Then Sanborn from the FBI says indicators of mobilization are key to observing when people are going to go violent. She says it's important to educate people on those indicators. Like uh, maybe that uh, Fort Hood shooter, when months earlier he was uh, giving a talk at uh, Walter Reed about how he supports suicide bombers, that, that, that kind of indicator. Maybe that would be an indicator. Dick Durbin says extremism goes far beyond organizations, appears to imply they go into ordinary society. Senator Grassley challenges DOJ's Olson about feds going after parents of school boards. According to Attorney General Garland, Olson's National Security Division is going to be working on school board cases. What is the National Security Division doing with regard to local school boards? Olson tells Senator Grassley that the National Security Division is playing an advisory role on school board cases, says he doesn't see a deeper rule for his division, but says that DOJ Criminal Division and Civil Rights Division will focus on school boards. Wow. DOJ's criminal division is going to focus on school boards. So you're going to arrest people for complaining about their school districts. Is that, is that, is that the implication here? The civil rights division. So you're going to say that uh, moms complaining about indoctrination in their schools are going to be violating somebody's civil rights? Is that the implication here? FBI Sanborn says school boards not a priority of FBI National Security Branch and that tagging of school board cases is merely an administrative process. Yeah, but the FBI lies all the time. She says violation of federal law would have to merit FBI involvement. Oh, I see. And yet you're involved anyway, aren't you? Violation of federal law would have to merit FBI involvement, and yet they're involved anyway. Senator Grassley notes that Sanborn was head of FBI counterterrorism unit in 2020 and that the FBI had opened 5,000 domestic terrorism cases over riots and that 70% were anarchist extremists, and he asks how the FBI has improved its ability to track anarchist extremists. Well... So Sanborn becomes political and starts talking about violence we saw around the peaceful protests of 2020. Senator Maisie Hirono, Democrat of Hawaii, possibly the dumbest member of the United States Senate, especially since Kamala Harris left to become vice president, says, is what happened on January 6th domestic terrorism? DOJ's Olson says they are being investigated as acts of domestic terrorism. Hirono pushes the DOJ for enhanced sentencing. Yeah, we want to enhance sentencing on people who didn't even realize that it was against the law that day to enter the Capitol because um, federal assets had removed the barricades and no trespassing signs. People who just walked in, took a couple of selfies, walked around, stayed inside the rope line. Senator Hirono wants 
enhanced sentencing for these people. Why? Because she's a communist who believes in persecuting those who disagree with her. Senator Lindsey Graham says, do you agree with the statement that January 6th is equal to Pearl Harbor? Olson says it was a unique and singular event, reluctant to compare it with Pearl Harbor. Senator Graham says, I didn't hear a whole lot from my Democrat colleagues for nearly an entire year about violence in Portland, Oregon. Neither DOJ's Olson or FBI's Sanborn can answer any questions about numbers of Portland arrests. Lindsey Graham asks DOJ's Olson about U.S. capability to detect jihadist violence coming from Afghanistan. Olson won't admit U.S. lost capabilities after the Afghan collapse. Lindsey Graham asks how many cross the southern border from special interest countries, FBI and DOJ, they're like, I don't know. Didn't have any data. Then Senator Chris Coons, Democrat Delaware, calls for prosecution of, quote, every extremist who committed politically motivated violence, unquote, on January 6th. Okay? Well, Senator Coons, I'm afraid that would probably include some FBI agents. But the important point that J. Michael Waller notices here is that Senator Coons said violence, not trespassing or unlawful parading. Now remember, the Biden Justice Department has not charged anybody with insurrection. So Senator Mike Lee says, just to put a fine point on it, has anyone been charged with the crime of insurrection following January 6th. DOJ's Olson hesitating and waffling says, I'm not aware that anyone has been charged with that particular offense. Senator Lee says DOJ had four-and-a-half-month delay to Senate letter, followed by a complete refusal to respond to Senate questions in the letter that was sent. Did DOJ use geolocation data in 2020 riots? DOJ's Olson doesn't know, can't say. FBI Sanborn says we do often use geolocation data. We'll provide more info. Senator Mike Lee gives excellent line of questioning of an unequal treatment of 2020 rioters versus January 6th rioters. Neither DOJ or FBI can answer the questions, but FBI offers to help with specifics. Senator Mike Lee says, I don't want to I don't want four and a half months to lapse again, and I don't want responses that are not responsive. Senator Blumenthal, Danang Dick Blumenthal, the guy lied about serving in Vietnam and his constituents reelect him anyway, is upset about social media not taking down Stop the Steal posts and accounts, calls out Facebook in particular. Oh, I see. So he's anti-First Amendment. He's a communist. DOJ's Olson says DOJ doesn't investigate people for their First Amendment activities, but social media has increased the speed and accessibility of violent extremist content. Biden's national strategy says it's critical to address the information environment. Oh, I see. Blumenthal asks about other means to track people off social media. 
Olson says, correct, there are multiple ways to track people. Blumenthal moves on to school board tracking. Olson says, as a general manner, as a general matter, it would not be appropriate to comment. Blumenthal seems annoyed. In other words, of course, the feds are tracking parents who are upset about the behavior of school boards and school districts, but they're not going to admit it. DOJ's Olson tells Senator Blumenthal that DOJ has not seen any school board issues rising to domestic terrorism or domestic violent extremism, but that won't stop them. That won't stop them. That won't stop them. Senator Ted Cruz said, how many have been charged with crimes of violence to January 6th? How many have been charged with nonviolent crimes? How many are currently incarcerated? How many are in solitary confinement? Olson says, I don't have any information about that, Senator. Oh, well. I mean, why would you? You're just a deputy attorney general in charge of the National Security Division. Ted Cruz says Americans are deeply concerned about the politicization of the Department of Justice under the Biden administration. It's been 218 days since senators asked for information. Cruz asked FBI Sanborn about whether FBI agents, pardon me, about whether FBI assets were used in planning or execution of violence on January 6th, about whether FBI assets were present at Capitol on January 6th, whether FBI assets were involved in violent crimes on January 6th, Amazing line of questioning. FBI's Sanborn says she can't answer his questions. Now, J. Michael Waller reminds us this is an extraordinary and aggressive line of questioning on the part of Ted Cruz. I wasn't able to transcribe or summarize it quickly enough. The FBI could not conclusively say no to Cruz's questions. In other words, did FBI assets commit crimes of violence on January 6th? Oh, I can't answer that, Senator. Really? Really? Senator Tom Cotton, Jr., Senator of Arkansas, says, did DOJ or FBI have plainclothes officers among the crowd in the Capitol? DOJ's Olson says, I'm not aware. Cotton says, did any enter Capitol on January 6th? Olson can't answer that. Senator Cotton asks about Ray Epps. Was one of January 6th, was one of the 16 of FBI's Capitol riot most wanted page, then he was removed. Who is Ray Epps? Why was he removed from the FBI list? Again, also the DOJ can't answer. Passes the buck to FBI Sanborn. Says, I'm not familiar with the most wanted page. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse reverts from January 6th to school board meetings. Line of questions seems to be directed toward collecting intelligence on parental school board activism. White House says, will DOJ investigate upstream to funders and organizers of January 6th violence or is it under pressure to do so? Significantly, the White House acknowledges that January 6th was organized in advance because he blasted us for saying the same a year ago. Dick Durbin runs interference for Ray Epps. References Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton comments about Ray Epps, says he's never heard of Ray Epps but cites a PolitiFact item attacking Revolver News and enters it into the record. So, obviously, he's lying. He has heard of Rips. Senator Josh Hawley asks about National Security Division personnel involved in January 6th, the school board investigations. Olson says the division provides an advisory role only. Hawley stresses concern about federal officials who track parents at school board meetings. 
Olson replies to Hawley that it isn't about monitoring people's free speech, but about protecting teachers and school board members from acts of violence, claims not to know of Attorney General Garland's testimony to this effect. Man, is anybody here playing with a full deck? Senator Hawley to DOJ's Olson about feds treating parents of school children as domestic terrorists. What we have found consistently about your department is that we can't get a straight answer. Senator Cory Booker asked about firearms on January 6th. FBI arrested one on January 6th, not within the restricted area, found three others possibly in restricted area with a firearm, and D.C. police made an arrest. Booker and Olson specify hockey sticks and flagpoles, but no firearms use. Biden's America. Senator Durbin reverts to school board activity and welcomes Olson to restate that the ordinary appearance before a school board peacefully is not a crime. DOJ's Olson emphasizes that it's not a crime to attend a school board meeting peacefully. Durbin stresses that federal government should indeed get involved and school board meetings where violence is threatened implies that certain government should usurp state Oh, implies that central government should usurp state and local law enforcement. By concluding the January 6th hearing Tuesday with comments on local school boards, Durbin appears to be using January 6th violence as a pretext to increase central government powers over state and local jurisdictions and over citizens angry about school, school board abuses against children. Well, that's just great. Give me a break, man. Uh, we got to pray for uh, fair elections in 2022 and 2024 because it's pretty clear these people, you know, want to put us all away. And part of the process of establishing federal government control over your life was when Nancy Pelosi and company jammed Obamacare down our throats in 2009. So let me ask you, are you like most Americans? Did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care actually more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, you need to go to a website called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. First thing you'll see is big, bold letters, affordable plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays, and then the button says schedule call now. So you click on that button, you book a free consultation with my buddy Art Wilborn, who will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage, and he will also make sure that you get an insurance plan that won't insult your morality like some of those Obamacare plans that won't, it won't make you cover things like abortion that would uh, deeply violate your deeply held religious beliefs. Again, myfamilyhealthplan.com. Affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. You click on the button that says, Schedule call now. Booking a free consultation with my buddy Art Wilborn. We'll make sure there are no gaps in your coverage.
save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com, you'll be certainly glad that you did. All right. Now, having said that, having said that, I think it's about time for the dealio. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, here he goes. Wait, 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 wait. I got to turn it up. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. Believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV that you want to buy online and get it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the Day. Philip Klein, former Attorney General of Kansas, District Attorney, State Representative. Right now, he's the director of the Amistad Project and professor at Liberty University. Tweet of the day, he says, the desperate last-minute effort to prevent the inspection of Fulton County, Pennsylvania's Dominion voting machines from proceeding as planned has been denied. The inspection by state Senate Investigators will take place today. So congratulations. Tweet of the day. Philip Klein. Great news. And again, brought to you by Red River Your Way. RedRiverYourWay.com. All right. Um, having said that, let me uh, let me do this real quick because I need to, I need to get a sip of water. Hang on. You're listening to The Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. You can now listen live weekdays, noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time at DocWashburnShow.com. Podcast available at DocWashburnShow.com and for download at Spotify, iTunes, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. We are on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at DocWashburnShow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. All right, glad we could do that. Glad we could do that. Uh, let me see if I can figure out how to do this. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty today. We're going to get our guest on anyway, though. Um, yeah, let me see. No. <clears throat> this must be a Sloan. Uh, Rackmuth, did Hello? I get it right? Did I get the last name right? Yes, you've got it right. Thank you for practicing ahead of time. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. All right, ordinarily, a producer gets the guest ready, and then the uh, the host, which, you know, I, I guess I am, uh, you know, um, for want of a better uh, term, the host, introduces the guest and then brings the guests on. However, our app which is called Net to Phone, is goofing up, and the producer couldn't get it to work. So he said, Doc, you're going to have to call this young lady yourself. I said, okay. So let me do this part. Our next guest is Sloan Rackmuth. She's the executive director of Pen and Shield, a nonprofit newsroom focused on government corruption, K-12 education, and religious bias in the United States. A number of conservative publications have featured her work, including The Federalist, The Daily Wire, Washington Examiner, even the Jerusalem Post. She's also president of Education First Alliance, an organization dedicated to restoring morality and merit 
and K-12 through education. Ms. Rachma, thank you so much for coming on the program and dealing with our, uh, showing great forbearance, dealing with our technical difficulties today. How are you? I'm doing great, Doc. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the big question today, uh, because I, I read your uh, your article over at uh, edfirstnc.org, exclusive student surveys are being used to improve North Carolina's surveillance system. So the big question uh, that I would love for you to share with my listeners the answer to is what is the North Carolina state government doing with student surveys, and why should this alarm Americans in the other 49 states? Well, I'll answer that question backwards and tell you that all 49 states have a similar system to the one I'm about to describe that's going on here in North Carolina. Yikes. So the system here, it's a, yes, so that should alarm everyone. But I believe the system in North Carolina is a little bit more advanced, so perhaps we can serve as a cautionary tale. Um, the survey in all states is called Longitudinal Data System. They call it LDS. Right, and it's being used to in the educational realm for understandable purposes. It, this began in about 2002 uh, on the federal level, and in 2006 there were grants available in all states to collect things like uh, absentee rates, just in, on a general scale, uh, test scores, uh, let's see, teacher effectiveness, uh, and kind of uh, as a way to track a student from kindergarten up to the workforce to say, wow, okay, these programs did not work. These worked. Uh, Things like that. Uh, How can we better program so that the job scene looks better for children in our state, right? Yeah. That's how these these things started. And as you know, uh, things get very manipulative or manipulated, rather, once progressives get involved and once uh, weak-kneed Republicans are in their midst and kind of bend to their will, and that's what's happened here in North Carolina mm. and perhaps across the country as well. Um, so so the, the, the excuse is, well, we just want to do our job better and figure out what programs in, uh, in the education system work and what programs maybe don't work, need to be retooled, because we need, need to do a better job um, for, for the students. Uh, but then that being the excuse, that being the foundation, the concern here, I think, is that uh, eventually what you have is a level of snooping. I mean, I looked at the uh, the questions that were asked of students and some of these questionnaires, and it's just outrageous stuff that most parents would be horrified if they knew their children would be asked these questions of a very personal and intimate nature, um, are are these high schoolers or middle schoolers or elementary school students? Who's being asked these horrible questions? Well, all of the above, and this is happening on a national level. So there are surveys, there have been uh, invasive surveys that really have caught parents' eyes over the last year, everywhere from we have chapters in California to Maine to Florida even, uh, certainly to Virginia and North Carolina, and you're right. I mean, they're asking middle schoolers, how many sexual partners do you have? Uh, when's the first time you lost your virginity? How many guns do you have in the house? I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane. And a lot of times, Doc, this is being done without giving parents any 
consent whatsoever, which of course runs afoul of federal law. But as you know, these uh, these laws are being enforced very well all across the country. And so, let's go back to this data system. So this yeah. this longitudinal data system. So it, it would collect things that are quantitative in nature, right? Uh, that's fine. But the, the, here's the thing, though. These these systems are very perfect now in identifying a student by their identifying number. First, it's a unique number. Then it turns into a Social Security number. So what's happening now in North Carolina is these questions, these rude questions that I just shot out at you, yeah. that kind of data is also being collected in order to start something called uh, knowledge visualization, which means getting all of this data onto a platform and figuring out algorithms, right, that would potentially grade somebody uh, according to a morality scale, just like the Chinese do, uh, in a a system that's, uh, you know, for surveillance. So these questions aren't done just for the heck of it. This is raw data that will be feed into an algorithm, and then the government will know, let's say a kid starting kindergarten now, by the time they graduate, a kid, uh, the government will know not only everything about them, but their parents, their friends, their friends' parents, et cetera. So it is an absolutely advanced surveillance system. And how do I know this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just a person, right? I know it because it's actually in the plans that North Carolina has outlined and their uh, longitudinal roadmap uh, to improvement. It sounds Chinese just in its name, does it not? Yeah, I mean, so it definitely sounds like communist Chinese government, the regime. Um, so what do you think they want to do with this information that they start in kindergarten and continue uh, surveilling these kids after they get out of public school? What, what, what do you think could, could be done with this? Well, the stated goal is scary enough. The stated goal is to, you know, use this information to kind of guide, uh, kind of prevent uh, citizens from getting into trouble. uh, It's like an over-outsized nanny state on steroids, right? They want to make sure that all departments, like Education Department, HHS, can you know, calibrate its operations to prevent pain from happening to citizens and to make their lives better. Mm. That's the stated goal. Wow. To prevent pain from happening. Well, you know, into each life some rain must fall, if I may use a a quote from somebody I wish I could give credit to, but I don't remember. But, I mean, to prevent pain from happening somebody's life, I mean, that's just... That's just some kind of utopian goal, which makes one think, okay, that's what they're saying, and then behind it, what they won't admit is is their real agenda. Well, exactly. So if we if we strip their intentions out of it and we look at just the development of the system, this is called a system of systems, and that means that all systems are talking to each other. So what I'm telling you is the education system, okay? So the education system, they carry this bucket of information. Then it's going to be linked also with the public safety division. So they'll know when you got a ticket or what have you. Then it's going to be linked to the Justice Department. Then it's going to be linked with HHS, which is already happening. So a system of systems, 
is absolutely how China now does its surveillance system and facial recognition. So that when you go to the grocery store, they scan your facial features. Okay, this person did this on this date, et cetera. They know everything about you. Now, in North Carolina, there is a company. It's the only privately held tech company in the world. It's called SAS. Okay? SAS is the the king of algorithms, very successful company. They are based here in North Carolina, but they also do business in China. They train the Chinese, and they're very proud of it, how to be the masters of creating these algorithms. So in North Carolina, our data is, is held and managed by the same company that has helped create the surveillance system in China. Oh, good grief. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Now, for, for uh, technology, technology being limited as it is, um, I, I know I came across this in your article, but um, it's difficult to understand. Can, can, you, uh, can you spell that, the, the name of that company for us? Sure, it's S-A-S. Okay, S as in Samuel, A as, and then S as in Samuel. That's right, S-A-S, that's correct. Okay, all right. So they're doing in North Carolina the same thing they're doing in China. Well, yes. And so, I mean, it appears to be, yes. I mean, you have a system of systems. That's, that's the stated goal of North Carolina. Um, yeah. And I'm sure it is, again, across the country. Yeah. And in order to calibrate that, uh, and in fact, again, this is in the, in the documents we collected. It's linked to our article. Um, they're saying, look, we already have this system built up that the feds have funded, et cetera, in the education realm. It's already been vetted, funded, et cetera, and we can perfect it because we've got the ID connected. So we're going to use this, and we're going to use the data we get from kids to kind of create the baseline and scale it up. And then we're going to make sure that all systems can talk to each other. That is exactly what China does, and it is exactly what we are doing, yes. And so my guess is, if by high school you have some kids who are becoming uh, politically active and uh, might put something like, uh, let's go Brandon on the Instagram account, that, that this would not go over very well with the powers that be, uh, at SAS and the North Carolina educational system. Well, you know what's interesting is the the guy who runs SAS, the the CEO and founder. His name is Jim Goodnight. He was the number one donor to Republicans, at least in this state, until this year. Now he's trying to take his company public, and he is making massive donations to people like Brandon and Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams. And so, yeah. so right, until, I guess, this uh, 2020 election, kids would have been okay doing that. But now the tables are turning, so right. you're right. Uh, this wouldn't be satisfactory to the powers to be, that be, yes. Okay, so let me, let me ask you... Um, uh, again, we're our, we're speaking with uh, Sloan Rackmuth, and she is the executive director of Pen and Shield, a nonprofit newsroom focused on government corruption, K through twelve education, even religious bias in the U.S. But also, she's president of Education First Alliance, an organization uh, dedicated to restoring morality and merit in K through twelve education. So obviously. If you have researched this to the extent that you have, and you got this big article about it, and you can certainly speak uh, 
eloquently and lucidly about it. Um, the, the, the next question is, when you attempt to address members of the North Carolina State Legislature about this concern, what happens? Well, it, it's difficult. Like I said, I mean, when you've got a guy who is the number one, the, the biggest earner and the biggest uh, millionaire here, and he's politically active, as you can imagine, it's tough. And so we we go about it, obviously, you know, getting people in North Carolina in the habit and, and the love for self-governing is our goal, and we make them more confident to do that and yeah. give them the knowledge. So it, it wouldn't be fun right like going in. I mean, we've, we've written a number of exposés on how this guy – uh, Jim Goodnight of SAS. He owns the education department here in North Carolina, and states copy our model. And so that's why it's, it's great to kind of learn about this from here. But how do we go about addressing them? I mean, we inform them first, but it's the best teacher, you know, for these legislators is their constituents. Right. And the best time to educate is right now, right, right before the midterms. That's when we teach them. Yeah, I see that on, on your website, um, Education First Alliance website, you got uh, an article here, Stop Spying on Children. Sign our petition to stop North Carolina's Panorama Survey and SEL program. You also have another article, Understanding Critical Race Theory, because as much as this has been in the news, you still have so many parents who haven't even heard of it, wouldn't know what you're talking about. Um so I applaud you in trying to get the word out. Um, so people listening in other states, because we have listeners in all 50 states, um, what would your recommendation be to parents who are concerned that the same thing is happening in their state of Arkansas or Vermont or Wyoming or whatever? What, uh, what do they need to do? First, go to your website and, and get a lot of uh, information and, and suggestions there. Absolutely. And we've got live broadcasts three times a week uh, with experts and we really do deep dives on um, this issue. But I would have your your listeners, all of you guys, if you're getting surveys already and you'll know there are panorama surveys there are social emotional learning surveys there are surveys that generally parents are not informed about and they're asking things that are so deeply personal and have absolutely nothing to do with the education of your child, then you have a pretty good idea that your state is doing the same thing. Now, the second thing you want to do is look at your state level for something called a longitudinal data system or something called, ready for this, K through 20 system. That means they're going to be monitoring kindergarten through 20 and beyond. So, so that, kindergarten through twenty-year-old. Correct. Wow. Now, re- that's been in place forever. This is going to be from the time a child is born till the adult dies. It's cradle to grave surveillance, and you know as well as I do, you do not collect individual level data unless you're going to act on it. Yeah. That's what's happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, good grief. Um, this is very concerning. Um, and I think that the, the, the big hump that we have to try to get over is educating parents that this is going on. 
And so this brings me back to what you said about if your child is getting a panorama survey, then that is a big warning bell right there. But what I'm wondering about is what if the child gets the survey at school, doesn't take it home, and doesn't tell the parent, how are you going to know? Well, it, you remember back in the day where we trained our tra- children about stranger danger, Yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we, we, we need to add an addendum to that and teach them as early as third grade about survey danger yeah. or maybe to extend that stranger danger isn't someone saying, hey, little boy or girl, you want this lollipop? It also includes, hey, can you take this survey? Yeah. Because that is what's happening. So we advocate... Uh, for training children beginning in third grade and really scaring the heck out of them about giving away their personal data. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same idea as, you know, trying to monitor their social media activity because kids put all kinds of stuff on social media that, you know, would the 35-year-old uh, Fred or Sally looking back at, 13-year-old Fred or Sally, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I did that on social media. Um, and, the, and the parents have to try to give them some perspective that, you know, you're going to grow up and this is still going to be there. Um, so you've got a pretty liberal governor there, Roy Cooper. Um, has he has he spoken at all? Is there any pushback from him about concerns that, that – that people on our side have about what they're trying to do. Oh, I mean, he he's sitting on the committee for this project, and he's really the driving force behind it. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is his brainchild, right, to extend, obviously, into every aspect of our lives. And we had a fantastic bill here that the uh, the Congress put up, the, the state house, for critical race theory that would ban racism in classes. And he vetoed it. Right. So, you know, this guy is a Joe Biden progressive all the way. Yeah, well, see, I I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm old enough to remember uh, back in the day, um, North Carolina was a state that until the early 70s was uh, sterilizing uh, minority a young woman who they thought to be mentally defective, mentally retarded, whatever, uh, involuntarily. That that went on up until the early 70s, and that was part of the old uh, Southern Democrat machine. And I sometimes wonder, I, I think that today's modern progressive Democrats uh, haven't really strayed that far away from the old South Democrats. They just hide the racism better. And it's 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 a serious concern. Now you got a pretty good lieutenant governor, though, right? Oh, he's exceptional. He's really gone out on a limb, and I mean, he you know exactly where he's coming from. With his course, is a hallmark of any good leader is that you know how they're going to come down on every issue, and that is Mark Robinson. Yeah, amen. And uh, if I recall correctly, he got started off in Greensboro as basically just a citizen concerned. I think it was either the county commission or the city council in Greensboro was trying to trying to crack down on the uh, you know people's lawful Second Amendment rights, and he made a speech. Uh, if if my memory serves me correctly, a few years ago, and all of a sudden people are like, 
uh, Mr. Robinson, you're a leader. Uh, you probably ought to run for office. And then the rest was history. It, do I have that about right? That's right. They're, they were cracking down on gun shows. Yeah. Actually, if you can imagine it, and I believe it was in Burlington. You're right, right about that area. Oh, Burlington. Okay, made, yeah. I mean, yeah, and, and the man is just a great speaker. Of course, when you're always telling the truth, you're never going to have a hard time standing up and speaking extraneously on just about anything, right? And he's, you know, a great truth teller. And, um, yes, actually, I, uh, I'm <clears throat> proud to be working with the, the folks that identified what a great leader he would be, and I think he had to obviously be talked into it and his wife did too because you know what a pain it is to not only run but put yourself out there day after day when you're not going with the grain and um thank goodness he did and i I think he beat out eight primary challengers which is important you guys because look if you are if you're thinking about running for office you really want to make a change and you're not um party affiliated if you will or you're not going to toe the line um get out there because i mean our lieutenant governor spoke the truth and did it with, with you know, conviction and beat out very well-financed field of uh, GOP hand-picked professionals. Wow. That's strong. So if people want to find out more, it's kind of hard to remember uh, the, the actual URL of your website, but... Uh, if you just Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo or whatever, whatever internet search engine people use, Education First Alliance, it even comes up first on Google. Education First Alliance. And then there's a, a tab there that says contact, you know, for people who want to get, a, get in touch with your organization. Uh, the top states that, uh, that download our podcast, of course, Arkansas, Texas, uh, Colorado, California, North Carolina, New York. Uh, so I'm sure there are a lot of parents out there who are very concerned, don't know what to do about it, but they go to your website, Education First Alliance, and they can get some pretty good pointers. Absolutely, and we have chapters in a lot of the states you just mentioned as well. So oh, wonderful. We can not only do that, but that, but bring them, uh, bring them to a chapter, which, look, I mean, we want – the most highly trained grassroots activists on planet Earth. That is our goal. So we train our activists to do FOIA requests, investigative journalism on their own. And how do you get out there and uh, and undermine the complacency that is in the uh, body politic out there right now? Because that's something that we need to learn how to do better and do a better job of it. Amen. Now, before I let you run, I saw, I wish I could remember what state it was, a couple of months ago. Um, a state legislator um, was trying to get a bill passed that would require um, curricula and lesson plans of public schools to be online for parents to peruse. And I believe it was the governor of the state, who was a Democrat, was like, oh, no, that's a horrible idea. Um, is this one of the areas where the rubber meets the road? We, we found out with the lockdowns and the school closures um, that on the one hand, a lot of teachers' unions are like, hey, hey, this is all right. We don't mind not having to go to school every day, not going to work every day. But on the other hand, being horrified that parents might be looking over at little Johnny or little Susie's shoulder at what was going on on the laptop, and they didn't want that kind of uh, uh, parental oversight or involvement. 
Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, we had it as a part of this bill, a Senate bill for us, 324, on critical race theory. Um, we have a representative by the name of John Torbett, who is the chief education guy here in North Carolina, who wrote a masterful bill about transparency, yeah. um, about, look, uh, you're going to post up the, the what you've been teaching, and uh, you're going to allow the parents to see it. And, look, that follows our adage. Our motto here at Education First is that transparency is for government and privacy is for the citizen. Yeah. That's how we operate, and that's what we want to enforce. But anyway, that wouldn't you know that the union teachers down here are all up in arms, well, that's extra work, well, that's a violation of academic freedom, and that's what they don't understand. This is the government, because if the government could do something for you, it can do something to you. And we want to know what the government is doing to our children. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, this the not to mention the school choice movement, I think, is growing and growing. Um, not to mention that during the time of, of dealing with COVID-19, uh, more and more parents, different parts of the country have decided to opt out of the government school system and, and see what they could do to try to homeschool their children or at least put them in a private school. Um, and, of course, it, it drives the so-called progressives crazy because they want to control us. And this, you know, th- what we're talking about right now is just another another uh, example. You know, this um, cradle to grave uh, being all up in your business of... <laughs> You know it's uh, it's outrageous, and we got to push back, and it's got to stop. Uh, again, I would um, highly recommend anybody uh, listening to the sounds of our voices today who has uh, school aged children or even school aged grandchildren to check out the website Education First Alliance. Just uh, just do an internet search for it, uh, whether you do Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing or whatever it is. Education First Alliance. And there's a trove of information here uh, to help you protect your children and protect your grandchildren. Um, Ms. Rockmuth, uh, a great article and, and a great interview. Is there anything else you want to share with my listeners before we, before we run here? Yeah, I just want to give you guys hope because, listen, we are winning. You may not think that we are because the media, now they're dedicated to suppressing at unprecedented levels our successes. So you're not hearing about it, but I want you to know that there are patriots all across this country who are fighting back and it's winning. There are common sense Democrats who are with us and we are winning this. So I want you to just, you know, have hope uh, that we can turn this around, but make no mistake about it. There's no political solution to this. It's all on us. Yeah. We have got to get busy. The, the people have got to get busy, and we have to train our leaders the way that we will be treated, for lack of a better term. So you need to get on your, your Republican representatives also. I mean, they're far from perfect as well. You need to run for office. But we are winning. You have to keep that in mind. You have to keep listening to Doc. We have to keep sticking together on this, and we have to keep shoulder to the grindstone. Absolutely, yeah. Amen. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, you know, they need to hear from you. You know, I, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. But, but before, I was about to wrap this up, but it just dawned on me. 
back in the mid-90s, when Clinton was president, uh, there was some sort of a bill being floated in the U.S. Congress that would require all teachers to have a certification for the uh, uh, for the the subject matter that they that they taught, and it was floated by a progressive Democrat, and a Republican tried to put an amendment that would have. Um, you know, given an, an exemption for homeschool teachers. And the Democrats voted that down. And so there was a guy named Dr. James Dobson who had an organization called Focus on the Family who put the word out about it. And there was an avalanche of phone calls to members of Congress, the likes of which some of them said they'd never seen before. And we got around to time to vote, I guess, two, three weeks later, uh, even the guy who proposed the bill voted against it. So, you know, uh, I, I wish I remembered more about it, but I remember the, you know, the, the bare bones of that. It's been like over 25 years ago, uh, and it's very rarely talked about, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a record of it somewhere out there on Al Gore's amazing interweb. But the point I'm trying to make is uh, to kind of dovetail what you're saying about we are winning um, to the extent that we're winning, it, it is the extent to which we are making ourselves be heard to those in power and making it clear that we can't just get away with whatever you want to anymore. And, and we have to, have to speak up. Um, so anyway, uh, Ms. Rockmuth, I, I really appreciate you coming on the program today. Again, uh, I urge everybody to just do an Internet search for Education First Alliance to find out how you can get involved in protecting our children, especially in the education system and the government schools in the state that you are in. Ms. Rockmuth, uh, have, a, have a great weekend, and God bless you, and Godspeed. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So there you have it. There you have it. I mean, just in case, just in case you think the idea of the government school system um, requiring your middle school student to fill out questionnaires of a sexual nature, just in case you think that there might be something wrong with that. Well, this is the organization that will help you, Education First Alliance. Do an Internet search for it. Know what I'm saying? All right, so Reuters. Reuters, this big uh, news aggregator, kind of like Associated Press or UPI. Reuters says Pfizer CEO Albert Boria, no, Borla, Got to get new glasses. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said in an interview that two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech shot offered very limited protection against infection with the Omicron variant. He was not talking about protection against infection by other variants. So that's what Reuters says. The great Yossi Gestetner, 
an incredible independent journalist, says the actual quote was very limited protection, if any, you lying hacks, if any. Also, what are you fact-checking here? It's known at this time that taking the jabs is not a dead end to spreading the virus, and his comments confirm it. What they're trying to do, obviously, as a great philosopher Tom Waits once said, the large print giveth and the small print taketh away. They're trying to obscure the truth with a headline, knowing that most people won't actually read the article. That's what they're doing. Just so you know. Now, have you heard that the government of Iran has released an animated video depicting the assassination of former President Trump? The video threatens revenge for the killing of the great jihad terrorist Qasem Soleimani. There is a Twitter profile called Iranian Americans for Freedom complaining that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei has released this animated video depicting the assassination of former President Trump. In the video, they're threatening revenge for killing of Qasem Soleimani. Iranian Americans for Freedom are saying this act of aggression must be met with strength by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, by Special Envoy for Iran from the U.S. government Robert Malley, by White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and, of course, by Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. But, of course, they won't touch it. Of course, they won't touch it. Now, former Director of National Intelligence under Trump, Richard Grinnell, says, did Jake Sullivan get asked by the propagandists in D.C. why Biden is negotiating with a regime who puts out videos targeting a former U.S. president? The AP Bureau Chief, Julie Pace, hasn't even tweeted about it. I wonder why. I wonder why that is. Now, Biden, after meeting with Democrats yesterday on the voting rights bill, just lost it. Just lost it. They say that people with dementia often have episodes in which they start yelling um, for no particular reason. It's, it's unseemly. They start yelling when they don't have to. You heard about that? People with dementia. They say that that happens often. 
Well, it certainly happened yesterday. He's frustrated because he wants to get this bill passed to outlaw states trying to keep their uh, voting rolls clean. See, if you pass a federal bill which would make it illegal for states to get dead people off their voting rolls, which would make it illegal for states to require picture ID so they can make sure that only American citizens are voting, then you'd never have another Republican president, and you probably would eventually have no Republicans left in Congress. Now, this is what Biden and his handlers want, and he's upset that two U.S. Democrat senators don't think it's a good idea. And so he starts yelling and quoting the great murderer Joseph Stalin. Check this out. We all ask questions about complicated subjects like, can you get this done? I hope we can get this done. The honest to God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. Is this mic on? I guess, anyway. And, uh, and oh, I'm not sure either. But anyway, I hope we can get this done. But I'm not sure. But one thing for certain, one thing for certain, like every other major civil rights bill that came along, if we missed the first time, we could come back and try it a second time. We missed this time. We missed this time. And the state legislative bodies continue to change the law, not as to who can vote, but who gets to count the vote. Count the vote. Count the vote. Right there. Right there. He's quoting Joseph Stalin, who always said, it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the vote. Right there. Quoting Joseph Stalin. It's about election subversion, not just whether or not people get to vote. Who counts the vote? That's what this is about. That's what makes this so different than anything else we've ever done. I don't know that we can get it done, but I know one thing. As long as I have a breath in me, as long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting to change the way these legislatures have moving. Thank you. Huh. How about that? How about that? Well, you know, I mean, he's certainly in poor health, right? So there's no telling how long he will continue as president. No telling how long. And, you know, it kind of reminds me. It kind of reminds me. For all the Republicans who are saying that um, the election wasn't stolen, that Trump just wasn't all that popular, Like U.S. Representative uh, French Hill, who represents the 2nd District of Arkansas, who says it's a fiction and a post-election fallacy that a landslide election was stolen from Donald Trump. 
Just want to remind you what Joe Biden said in October of 2020. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. It's not a gaffe, not a Freudian slip. He said it and he meant it, and they did, and they did. So again, speaking of uh, U.S. Representative French Hill, who just thinks that Joe Biden is just peachy keen, and one fair and square, if you're in central Arkansas and you would like to support French Hill's primary opponent, his name is Conrad Reynolds. He is a retired Army colonel. He's in the U.S. Army for 29 years. He will be on the ballot in the Republican primary in Arkansas, May 24th. And, again, if you're in central Arkansas, you want to get rid of a, of a rhino, there's going to be a meet and greet for Colonel Conrad Reynolds, French Hill's opponent in the Republican primary for U.S. House. There's going to be a meet and greet for Conrad Reynolds uh, this coming Tuesday afternoon from 4 to 6 in the afternoon at the uh, Whole Hog Barbecue on Cantrell. And I think it is the first 10 people, it might even be the first 20 people that show up, get $10 gift certificates to Whole Hog Barbecue, and that stuff's good. And I think they're also going to be giving out uh, Let's Go Brandon bumper stickers and elect Conrad Reynolds bumper stickers. So if you're in central Arkansas, come be with us to meet and greet the candidate. Four to six, Tuesday afternoon, this Tuesday, at Whole Hog on uh, on Cantrell. All right. No, there's still, uh, wow. There's still a lot to talk about. A lot I'm going to try to get to here in the, in the next few moments. <clears throat> so, just want to remind you about the best-kept secret in American health care. Um, and for that matter, remind you a little personal story in my own life. My wife and I got married in the spring of 2016, but New Year's Eve 2015, I couldn't find her. I couldn't get a hold of her. She wasn't answering the phone. And I finally got a Facebook private message from one of her children saying, Mama woke up this morning, couldn't catch her breath. And Jason's girlfriend had to drive her 80 miles an hour to the ER at Baptist Medical Center, and she's in a medically induced coma. I'm like, medically induced what? Now, what I found out was that that means they got to put you under to stabilize you. So she was in the hospital for nine days. Two and a half of those days, she was in a medically induced coma. They told her she had COPD. When she got out of the hospital, I took her to the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. And she got her atlas adjusted. And almost immediately, she told me, this is crazy. The big toe on my left foot has felt numb and tingly for years and now feels normal. That afternoon, I was doing my regular local afternoon radio talk show in Little Rock. And she texted me and said, hey, Doc, guess what? I, I don't. 
I don't have my regular daily backache. Good. A few days later, she said, you know what? I have not had a headache since I got my atlas adjusted at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. I said, well, how often are you used to having headaches? She said, every day. So my wife is one of many, many people I know who have been helped by getting their atlas adjusted. Now, let me explain to you what that means and how you might be able to figure out if you need to get your atlas adjusted. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for that atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column could get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect anything, your circulatory system, your digestive system, your reproductive system, and yes, even your respiratory system. It can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, all kinds of stuff. So how do you know if you might need to get your atlas adjusted? Well, do you have migraines? Do you have neck pain? Do you have back pain? Okay, look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Do you naturally tilt your head to one side or the other? Because that's how you feel normal. The answer to any of these is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. So if you're in central Arkansas, do yourself a favor and call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. The website is TurnMyPowerOn.com. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to the website, TurnMyPowerOn.com, click on the tab that says Find a Doctor to see if you can find one near you. TurnMyPowerOn.com. You'll be glad you did. Okay, so what is this? Kendall Teets over at um, Daily Caller says, nation's largest teachers union wrote a letter calling on social media companies to restrict so-called propaganda about critical race theory. Following the National School Boards Association letter sent to the White House comparing parents to domestic terrorists, the nation's largest teachers union sent a letter to social media companies encouraging them to crack down on so-called propaganda surrounding critical race theory and other education concerns raised by parents. National Education Association President Becky Pringle requested the leaders of Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok to prioritize the safety of people over profits, according to her letter. She said the speed and reach of lies on social media are manipulating citizens in a way that wouldn't be possible if their platforms didn't exist and called on the companies to make a pledge to fix their algorithms to, quote, regulate lies, unquote. You know, speaking of regulating lies, you won't believe some of the stuff people say on social media. They actually say a boy can become a girl or a girl can become a boy. Huh? They actually say that man is affecting the climate and we can change that? Just crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Now, this is fascinating. 
We have a young lady named Angie, Angie Schmidt, who has written for the Atlantic Magazine. She's written for the New York Times. So, you know, probably not that much of a conservative. She's on Twitter with an amazing insight. She says, one of the things that made it really hard to believe school closures were sincerely based on health concerns was the way we treated daycare centers, the complete opposite, and just left them open and barely even mentioned those teachers' health. The class sizes are smaller, but daycare teachers change diapers and wipe noses. Hours opened like 10 months earlier than the public schools and didn't even mask the kids. No one seemed to be too concerned about it. It also had zero windows. Our pandemic response the whole time has asked people to accept very bizarre contradictions. Almost a question. Elementary schools are so dangerous, but daycares are fine. We spent more than a year insisting absurdly both those things were true. I think it's easy it's easy to look past it if it doesn't affect you very much, but if you're killing yourself to help the government realize a completely ridiculous double standard, it's hard to shake your sense of cynicism about it all. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard to shake your sense of cynicism. Especially when you see politicians, adults all the time, insisting that you wear a mask, but then they're caught not wearing a mask. Not wearing a mask. You know, just a thought. Just a thought. Now, we got Jim Jordan, U.S. Congressman, Republican from Ohio. And the wonderful Molly Hemingway from The Federalist. On with Laura Ingram on Fox last night. And this guy named Josh, who goes by the Dirty Truth on Twitter, does a great job of capturing video from television and sharing it out there on Twitter. He says, I don't know why Jim Jordan expects the Democrats to do what's right. Democrats were literally sending money to help get their rioters out of jail. I think some of the Democrat Congress members were leading the charge during the summer riots. Okay, so let's check out what he's talking about here. Jim Jordan, Laura Ingram, and Molly Hemingway. Point. Uh, the U.S. has a poor record of actually convicting people of sedition. Um, the Associated Press noting that the last time U.S. prosecutors brought a case was in 2010 in an alleged Michigan plot. A judge ordered acquittals on the sedition conspiracy charges at a 2012 trial, saying prosecutors relied too much on hateful diatribes protected by the First Amendment and didn't, as required, prove the accused ever had detailed plans for a rebellion. Congressman, reading through the indictment, it seems it seems eerily for them similar here. 
we don't see any of the so-called evidence they have. Maybe they do, but maybe they're just keeping it close to the chest. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, well, I'll have to look at it. I haven't had a chance to, to, to look at what they're saying here. Um, look, we want people who did wrong to be held responsible, and, and frankly, they are. 700-some people have been prosecuted. We'll see how this plays out. The big takeaway I have, and Molly referenced this, w- Republicans have been consistent throughout all this. We condemned the violence that took place on January 6, 2021, and we also condemned all the violence that took place in the summer of 2020. It would have been nice if Democrats had done the same thing, but instead we get, we get the, the statements we get from the committee, we get the committee altering evidence, not just about a text message that I forwarded to the White House chief of staff, but others as well. And now we're just supposed to take their word about this individual, Mr. Epps, who was encouraging people to go into the Capitol the day before January 6th, but somehow he's not getting charged. Yes. Somehow he's not getting charged. So again, Josh, the dirty truth, says, I don't know why Jim Jordan expects the Democrats to do what's right. They're sending money to help their, get their rioters out of jail. I think some of the Democrat Congress members were leading the charge during the summer riots. And um, the great Julie Kelly responds, what happened on January 6th is in no way comparable to the 2020 riots. These cons- Comparisons need to stop. So she's criticizing Jim Jordan for acting like January 6th was just as bad as the 2020 riots. You know, the um, problem with that is the violence, mostly on January 6th, was police attacking peaceful protesters. So we have this uh, Kimberly Well. Professor of law, TV analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney, opinion writer for Politico, The Atlantic, something called The Bulwark, which is the Never Trumpers, the Rhinos, and The Hill, former CBS News analyst. She's got a new article out of The Bulwark, new column entitled, Here's Why Capital Insurrectionists Are Being Charged Under a Post-Enron Law, there's the same law Liz Cheney flagged as applying to Donald Trump. Julie Kelly saying Kimberly still won't answer what official proceeding defendants like the Oath Keepers supposedly obstructed. Kimberly Wells says, thanks for reading my work. Per your question, it's Congress's counting of the electoral votes. Check out federal judge Dabney Friedrich's decision saying precisely that. Julie Kelly responds, they weren't counting Electoral votes when almost all January 6th protesters entered the building. Explain your timeline and don't link to court orders I've already read and covered. Uh, Booyah. Booyah. She also says, Kimberly, the joint session was recessed by the time most of these defendants, including the Oath Keepers, entered the building. How do you obstruct a proceeding that isn't happening? Yeah, I don't think she's going to get uh, an answer on that. Something tells me. Something tells me there's not going to be an answer on that. All right, now, um, I've got to get to what the Supreme Court did yesterday, which is kind of confusing 
because they did two rulings, one of which was very good and one of which was very bad, but both of which were very similar. Very similar. Uh, The great William A. Jacobson over at LegalInsurrection.com has the article, Supreme Court stays OSHA large employer vax mandate upholds CMS health worker mandate. Subtitle, split verdict, six to three against OSHA mandate with liberals dissenting five to four in favor of CMS mandate, Thomas Alito Gorsuch Barrett dissenting. And if if um, those of you listening to the live stream, if it cuts off before we're through with this, then the rest of it will be on the podcast in a few minutes. Because uh, Podbean tends to cut us off at about two hours and six minutes. All right. So here's the deal. OSHA. The Supreme Court stayed the OSHA large employer mandate, 6-3, to Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan dissenting, of course, because they don't believe in the law. It's just whatever they want to do. And the Supreme Court said, the Secretary of Labor, acting through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, recently enacted a vaccine mandate for much of the nation's workforce. The mandate which employers must enforce applies to roughly 84 million workers covering virtually all employers with at least 100 employees. It requires that covered workers receive a COVID-19 vaccine and it preempts contrary state laws, the only exception for workers who obtain a medical test each week at their own expense and on their own time and also wear a mask each workday. OSHA has never before imposed such a mandate, nor has Congress. Indeed, although Congress has enacted significant legislation addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, it has declined to enact any measure similar to what OSHA has promulgated here. Many states, businesses, and nonprofit organizations challenged OSHA's rule in courts of appeals across the country. The Fifth Circuit initially entered a stay, but when the cases were consolidated before the Sixth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit lifted the stay and allowed OSHA's rule to take effect. Applicants now seek emergency relief from this court, arguing that OSHA's mandate exceeds its statutory authority and is otherwise unlawful. Agreeing that applicants are likely to prevail, we grant their applications and stay the rule. Now, the heart of the ruling was that Brandon, I mean OSHA, did not have the authority. So here's the heart of the ruling. Applicants are likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the secretary lacked authority to impose the mandate. Administrative agencies are creatures of statute. They accordingly possess only the authority that Congress has provided. The secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. It's instead a significant encroachment into the lives and health of a vast number of employees. And they have the quote from uh, from a court decision from last year, Alabama Association of Realtors versus Department of Health and Human Services, which says, we expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. Supreme Court continues, there can be little doubt that OSHA's mandate qualifies as an exercise of such authority. The question then 
is whether the act plainly authorizes the Secretary's mandate. It does not. The act empowers the Secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. And they they link to that part of the uh, U.S. Code directing the Secretary to set occupational safety and health standards and authorizing the Secretary to impose emergency temporary standards necessary to protect employees from grave danger in the workplace. They say confirming the point the Act's provisions typically speak to hazards that employees face at work, and no provision of the Act addresses public health more generally, which falls outside of OSHA's sphere of expertise. Now, the the, the dissent from Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan on this, of course, as predicted, people are going to die. That's their dissent. And I'm not going to read that whole thing to you because, you know, you get you get the Cliff's notes. You get the idea. Now, on the ruling that got wrong yesterday, the CMS healthcare worker mandate, the court upheld the mandate. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett dissenting. But, you know, they needed one more vote. The court upheld the mandate, staying local lower court rulings against the mandate. And here's what they said. Now, remember, this is Breyer. This is Kagan. This is Sotomayor. This is Roberts. And this is Kavanaugh all voting together. Because there's five votes. They say the Secretary of Health and Human Services administers the Medicare and Medicaid programs, which provide health insurance for millions of elderly disabled and low-income Americans. In November 2021, the Secretary announced that in order to receive Medicare and Medicaid funding, participating facilities must ensure that their staff, unless exempt for medical or religious reasons, are vaccinated against COVID-19. Two district courts enjoined enforcement of the rule, and the government now asks us to stay those injunctions. Agreeing that it is entitled to such relief, we grant the applications. So the majority held the order was with, within the government's authority under statute. Supreme Court says, first, we agree with the government that the Secretary's rule falls within the authorities that Congress has conferred upon him. Congress has authorized the Secretary to impose conditions on the receipt of Medicaid and Medicare funds that the Secretary finds necessary in the interest of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services. COVID-19 is highly contagious, dangerous, blah, 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 blah. Now, in his dissent, the great Clarence Thomas, who by all rights should be Chief Justice, says, and he's joined by others, joined by Alito, joined by Gorsuch, joined joined by Amy Coney Barrett. He actually disputes that CMS has this power. He says, to obtain a stay, the government must show that there is one a reasonable probability that we would grant certiori two, a fair prospect that we would reverse the judgments below, and three, a likelihood that irreparable harm will result from denying a stay. It says, because there is no real dispute that this case merits our review, our decision turns primarily on whether the government can make a strong showing that it is likely to succeed on the merits. In my view, the government has made no such showing here. 
The government begins by invoking two statutory provisions that generally grant CMS authority to promulgate rules to implement Medicaid and Medicare. The first authorizes CMS to publish such rules and regulations as may be necessary to the efficient administration of the agency's functions. The second authorizes CMS to prescribe such regulations as may be necessary to carry out the administration of the insurance programs under the Medicare Act. The government has not established that either provision empowers it to impose a vaccine mandate. These cases are not about the efficacy or importance of COVID-19 vaccines. They're only about whether CMS has a statutory authority to force health care workers by coercing their employers to undergo a medical procedure they do not want and cannot undo. Because the government has not made a strong showing that Congress gave CMS that broad authority, I would deny the stay's pending appeal and I respectfully dissent. Now, Alito issued his own dissent, joined by Clarence Thomas, Amy Coney Barrett, and Neil Gorsuch. He says, but even if the federal government has the authority to require the vaccination of health care workers, it did not have the authority to impose that requirement in the way that it did. Under our Constitution, the authority to make laws that impose obligations on the American people is conferred on Congress, whose members are elected by the people. Elected representatives solicit the views of their constituents, listen to their complaints and requests, and make a great effort to accommodate their concerns. Today, however, most federal law is not made by Congress. It comes in the form of rules issued by unelected administrators in order to give individuals and entities who may be seriously impacted by agency rules at least some opportunity to make their views heard and have them given serious consideration Congress has clearly required that agencies comply with basic procedural safeguards. In these cases, the relevant agency did none of those things. And the court rewards this extraordinary departure from ordinary principles of administrative procedures. Although today's ruling means only that the federal government is likely to be able to show that this departure is lawful, not that it actually is so, This ruling has an importance that extends beyond the confines of these cases and may have a lasting effect on executive branch behavior. Yeah, well, see, that's the problem. They get away with it. No, no, they didn't get away with the one. They got away with the other. Biden got smacked down on the OSHA mandate. Well, the CMS mandate for health care employees, I hate that word worker. It sounds like communist. CMS mandate for healthcare employees gets upheld. Gets upheld. And that's a shame because they told us Kavanaugh was a conservative. They told us he's a conservative. Oh, well. Anyway, and of course, Biden is still urging business owners to force the experimental jab anyway. See, the the company I worked for, Cumulus Media, they didn't have to have Joe Biden tell them. I mean, they are all tragically hip, tragically woke anyway. CEO of Cumulus Media is angry with people who haven't been vaccinated. That's what she said August of last year, and I have seen nothing to change. Give them the idea that she's changed her mind on that. 
Somebody told me that the great one, Mark Levin, said the other day, if Cumulus goes woke, then he's not going to be able to uh, keep doing a show with him. He's going to walk. Well, be interesting to see how that plays out, because as far as I'm concerned, Cumulus is woke and has been for some time. But Mark's on almost 400 radio stations, so he's probably insulated from a lot of the wokeness in a way that local employees with just one station were not. But he's a great guy, and it was certainly an honor to fill in for the great one, Mark Levin, 11 times. I'll always, always appreciate that. All right, you've been listening to Episode 66 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Semper the Tenth. And that's the way it is. Friday, January 14th, 2022.